Second Kings, this evening, chapter 21, Persons of Interest, that's the name of this title. Well, that's the title of this consideration. Each of the three kings in this chapter are men of interest, two especially for, I think, unbelievers, to tell unbelievers about this contrast in the two men. We are going to consider, and I'll give an overview about Manasseh before we start hitting the verses. But first is King Manasseh. He is the son of that righteous King Hezekiah, who has died, and Manasseh now reigns in Judah. His idolatry, and it's being denounced by God, we'll come across that. Then Ammon, his son, who is also wicked, and then King Josiah is introduced Uh, He's named, and we'll get him next chapter. And, of course, he is of very much interest to the believers, but the other two, unbelievers could benefit, I think, from hearing their stories. They are persons of interest. There go the title. Now, the miracles that surrounded the life of King Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, apparently meant nothing to him. Perhaps when Isaiah was told by God, take a lump of figs and put it on the, the, the boil, the, the ailment of the king, and he was miraculously healed, perhaps the son said, ah, the figs did it, not God. That's a common mistake, unfortunately. All the vile practices of the Canaanites, even the Sodomites, were revived in him in Judah after his father worked so hard to get him out of the land. And in fact, we'll get to that where, uh, in verse 9, I'll quote it in a minute, he was worse than the pagans. Molech worship flourished, and that, was inclu- that includes child sacrifice, human sacrifice, sorcery, the occult. Verse 9, it says, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel. That's a pretty heavy-duty comment to say that this man in the line of King David was worse than people who never heard of David or Yahweh. And he was king for 55 years. God had commanded Moses to write a song about idol about apostasy, and said, train them to children, teach them this song, because in this song about apostasy are the consequences for being an apostate, and an apostate is someone who is once in the faith and then steps out of it. Not backslider, although backsliding can lead to apostasy, but the apostate turns his back on the, on the religion, on the faith, goes complete another direction, and that's Deuteronomy 31, uh, through thirty-two, forty-three, verse 43. So if you want to look up the song of Moses that is given to instill in the people the severity of apostasy. Well, Manasseh is a, a, an apostate, and he's a, a wretched apostate. There are degrees, and he is the worst. Apparently, later... He involves Judah in rebellion with Moab and Edom against Assyria, that world power, certainly in the region. And he's taken prisoner to Babylon. Not Assyria, he's taken prisoner to Babylon. Oh, Babylon was just a little conquered state itself at this time. It wasn't anything to talk about. There in Babylon, Manasseh humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, we're told. He repented. There in his agony, as we know, the Assyrians had put hooks in his mouth and led him away a prisoner. And there he meditated on his transgressions before Yahweh, the Yahweh he hated and fought against. And he repented. And he was returned to Jerusalem by the Assyrians. And he was likely a king a long time after that also. And if we read in Second Chronicles 33, which is the parallel passages or section of Scripture, then Manasseh knew 
that the Lord is God. And he did so much damage before he got there. And so when we say only one sin is, is unpardonable, he is proof. That sin that finally tells God, I'm not interested in your salvation, get out of my face and don't come back, it reaches a point where God honors that and that person has committed the blasphemous sin of telling the Holy Spirit, uh, I'm not interested. And I'll come back to that. Manasseh is an example of someone who didn't go that far. As far as he went into sin, he gets saved for all that he did against Yahweh. After his release, the repentant king attempted to institute reforms. Say, you know, I, I goofed and I need to fix this. I'm king, I'm going to do whatever I can. And he, he did a lot. It's there in Second Chronicles 33, which, which indicates he had to have been king for a while to do some of the things he did after his conversion. And yet, God will say, you know, he, did, he, he was so wicked, even his conversion could not undo the damage that he caused in the kingdom. Well, he, he was forgiven that, but the people who enjoyed his seductions, well, they are accountable to God for it. I'm going to take two passages from Second Chronicles 33. He took away the foreign gods, this is after his conversion, and the idol from the house of the Lord, which he incidentally brought in. And all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of Yahweh, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve Yahweh, God of Israel. Full-blown recovery. This is why he's an interesting character for unbelievers. You can say to an unbeliever, listen, I, maybe you know them well or not. Either way, you can say, look, I know you're all messed up. I can look at you and tell. You're just a train wreck. And maybe you think you're not, but before God, you are. Maybe you think you've done so much evil, you can't be forgiven. You are a person of interest to God. He can save you, but you've got to come. Just like Manasseh. Or Ammon, his son, who was just as wicked didn't live long enough to execute a lot of his evil. He did not repent. He is not having a good day right now. Verse 1 now in Second Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Uh, the statesmen would oversee his reign, the reign of the child kings. They wouldn't just, you know, at 12 years old, here's the scepter. You just, what do you want us to do? They wouldn't do that. We'll find that out with Josiah. But, but there would be this gradual development until they were old enough to, to take control. It's difficult, as mentioned last session, to determine if Manasseh was actually born before Hezekiah's illness or after. If he was born after then you've got to say, you know, Hezekiah, maybe it would have been good for, you, for everybody if you just died when you were supposed to die. But, you know, you, you cannot be dogmatic because you just don't have the information. You, where it gets sticky is you try to reconcile the dates of the kings, which is it's not possible. You can get close. I don't think it's possible. Some commentators are pretty like, well, he reigned from this year to that. And it's like, hey, you know what? You've got half information. That's not... 100%. Anyway, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, the longest reigning king of all the Israelites in the northern and southern kingdom. Uh, and during this much of this time, it is as though Yahweh withdrew himself and allowed the filth of the idolatry to pour out of the people's hearts. Because this king didn't sin alone. The people got with him. Not all. They were a righteous remnant. There's always a righteous remnant. But uh, the, when these kings were evil, the people were evil too. Uh, if you have a church where the pastor is a blasphemer and doesn't believe in the Bible, and people attend that church nonetheless and tithe and support it, well, he's not the only guilty one. Uh, they are also. His mother's name, Hephzibah, the wife of Hezekiah, uh, her name is in there just to give us a difficult time pronouncing names like that. Verse 2 
And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. Remember, the writer is writing to future generations. And he's saying, you need to learn this. You need to understand God's relationship to us. And here's the record. And we are coming along years later. We have more information than they have about God. And we are supposed to pay attention also, take heed to the scripture. Well, this is the counter-reformation. Ahab, the wicked king, and dies and Hezekiah comes to the throne, um, the grand, his grandson, and he institutes a reformation. He reshapes the nation closer to what it was supposed to be, as best he could. Well, now when he dies and his son Manasseh comes, there's a counter-reformation to get it back to the way Ahaz had it and worse. And so here's Manasseh systematically. That's deliberate. That is, uh, uh, there's an energy involved. He is purposefully trying to undo what his father achieved for the God of Israel. I mean, you would like to go up to him and say, well, how did you Jews get here? To, to this Canaanite land. I mean, the only answer is Moses and the, the emancipation from Egypt. You would think they would say, well, Yahweh is God. All the rest are fake. But it goes the other way. He became a satanic vessel, preferring other people's gods over the proven God of his father and father's. Words underestimate or understate. They understate the evil and the suffering he caused. Well, that's nothing new about that. Uh, Stalin, what he did to the, his own people. You, you, words can't capture how evil he was. It gets us close to a point. But to have lived through, uh, to have survived Stalin, you'd have a better understanding of what any history book could give you. Well, it's the truth. The man's evil was what we would say off the chart. Verse 3, For he built, pardon me, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooded image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. I, I mean, you know, you, you just, it's, it just repeats itself. You, know, you can't allow yourself to get discouraged. Driven by bitterness. I, I don't know how else would you, you know, try to get your head around what this man is doing against all his father, his beloved father Hezekiah had done. He's determined to stick it to his father's memory. And the loyal followers of Yahweh, such as Isaiah at, at this time. All of this evil that he does, and he's not demon-possessed. We have no indication that, well, he's possessed by a demon. He's influenced by demons. We're not possessed by them. He's in control of his faculties. The capacity for evil in man is astounding. A human being can, well, we learn in, in, in Christ when he throws 2,000 pigs stampede off a hill filled with the demons that one man was strutting around with. The man could, was in better control of the demons than the pigs could handle. So, yeah, the capacity for man to do evil is quite remarkable. And uh, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, in, in children, some of them raised in Christian homes, to be determined to spite their parents through religion. Well, he worshipped the host of heaven and served them. Well, that's the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. Deuteronomy 4, God says, take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Paul says they, you know, worship the creature, not the creator. And it's interesting, God says, you know, I've given the stars and the moons to humanity, to people, to human beings, not to worship. <laughs> uh, I mean, just if you've ever been in a place where you could see the, the night sky without the washing of man-made light, it is astounding. 
you would think somebody painted it. It is so remarkable. We can't see it here. There's so much light from everything around us that uh, you just you don't see a few stars. Anyhow, uh, back to this. That's where he went in defiance of the law of Moses, verse 4. He also built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. Verse 5, And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. He hated, he hated the God of Israel. And it is announced by him by putting his beloved demon representations above Yahweh in Jerusalem, the city of God, in the temple, the house of God. He's defiant. About a hundred years later, a little more, Ezekiel will come along and he will address this kind of behavior And he will say, you know, the day is coming when our kings won't be like this. Ezekiel 43, and he said to me, son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or by the carcasses of their kings on their high places the carcasses of their kings, lightly the dead animals that they offer to God in their various uh, worship sites. Well, Ezekiel is is saying, God has seen all this, and he's not done. And you need to, to, you're you're being warned. And, you know, many of them would say, but you got to come see Ezekiel. You got to hear this guy preach. And they were just fake. They wanted entertainment, many of them. They they weren't real, and it comes out in his writings. Anyway, uh, he expended a lot of energy defying Yahweh, this, this Manasseh, hoping to remake Judah. We're living now in a time where people want to remake America into some, you know, into Oakland or San Francisco. Uh, it, it, it's just uh, diabolical. They hate the freedom that people have to preach Christ. That's what Satan really is steamed by. He, uh, he loves to suppress freedom. Anyway, uh, verse 6, also he made his sons pass through the fire, practicing soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. Uh, When it says he made his son pass through the fire, of course, we're talking about the sacrifice. Uh, It said again in here it's plural, uh, singular, it's plural in Second Chronicles 33, verse 6. But that is, you know, um, uh, he offered them up to a cruel death by fire. Of course, I smirk at practicing soothsaying. You know, you stand in front of the mirror and you keep saying, sooth, sooth. What are you doing? I'm practicing soothsaying. Uh, it's kind of goofy, right? And he consulted mediums. He's out in the middle of the road and talking to the medium. What should I do? Get out of the traffic. Anyway... Uh, just a little humor there, uh, very little, and we'll move on. Uh, where are we? Well, a person's religion influences their behavior, either good or bad, and we see what this one is doing. Uh, why does God need to prohibit human sacrifice? I mean, isn't that something you would think somebody would figure out on their own? Look, you know, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. In fact, it didn't happen to me. I'm not going to do it to anybody else. But I really, really want that car. And maybe if I please some fictitious God somebody made up, he'll get me that car. Murder. Does God have to say, thou shalt not kill? I mean, did Cain think that this was, you know, pretty soon everybody's going to be doing it. It's so vogue. Uh, lying. Do you have to tell people, stop lying. Stop stealing. Well, you do. Sin has made a mess of everything. Uh, but again, men know... They do not want to be victims of these things. And so you don't always have to use Scripture to convict the guilty. Reason sometimes works, but Scripture hits the hardest because it cuts at the conscience. Uh, Anyway, of course, all this is in the Old Testament uh, and New. All that Hezekiah had torn down, Manasseh rebuilds. And he picked fights with Yahweh because he hated him. And this is made evident by the defacement of sacred things. 
Imagine, imagine if you know you you you're married to someone and you want to bring in a picture of somebody else and put that on the night table. Well, that's what they're doing to God. That's why God referred to them as you know unfaithful, and has a whole book, the book of Hosea, presents God's case just that way to try to jar them into a reality that many of them were not interested then, but at death they became very interested. But it was too late. Verse seven. He even set a carved image of Ashtara, and he had made in the house of which Yahweh had said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So this is blatant blasphemy, widespread throughout history. It made Lucifer a Satan, or a devil, both really. What an awful portrait to paint of any human being, especially a king of Judah, a child of righteous Hezekiah, it seems too bad to be true. But it is true. And it makes the heart almost sick to read of the list of abominations that he stacked up, his rap sheet, his spiritual rap sheet. The Bible means nothing to people in such a state of darkness. In fact, the Bible can serve to provoke them to more evil. They want, to, they want to fight God and stick it to him to do more evil. Verse 8, and I, will not, uh, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded well, verse 8 is, is, of course, fragmented from 7 as I've read it, but it recovers because it explains uh, itself again. Uh, not even Israel was entitled to sin without consequence, and, and that's what God is, has been telling them. Uh, there has to be uh, the checks and balances of repentance and accountability. And all of Israel's woes throughout history to this day are because they are not careful to obey. Verse 9. But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel. And that destruction was judgment. It wasn't just, you know what? I'm just going to make room for you and I'll wipe those other people out. I just, because I love you that much. That, that is not what happened. Those people were so wicked. God said, they've got to go. They're not good for humanity. And the long-term plan of, of their influence is not something I'm going to permit. And so God raised up the Jews and said, I've got a place for you. And you're going to be my instrument of judgment. And it worked both ways because when the Jews became wicked, God used other peoples to get them out of the land. But of course, the Lord brings them back. And so, verse 29, where it says, but they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them. This is, this is so common. It's just a, how many times do we watch this movie to try to, hope, well, are we hoping for a different ending when we see these, this kind of behavior? He got them to do evil and feel good about it without hesitation because the shame was stolen. When you take the shame out of sin, then why not sin? Shame is a powerful tool when it's properly played. Unfortunately, you get good people ashamed of things that they don't always have to be ashamed of. It's misplaced. Verse 10, And Yahweh spoke to his servants, the prophets, saying, verse, 20, verse 11, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites. Who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Uh, is there a worse comparison? He embraced known abominations. And you just want to say, what were you thinking? Uh, well, you're going to find out the hard way. Uh, this is justifying the judgment that's coming their way. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. A sort of an idiom there, but we can, we can crack the case. Uh, so this image here, God uses four images of his judgment in verses 12 and, and 13. 
Uh, he uses nor you know the tingling, which in its root is a tambourine or a bell or a cymbal. He he will use a ruler, a plumb line, and the kitchen sink. The word for uh, tingle, salal, in the Hebrew means to quiver, to rattle, to tingle. And again, it is related to the words symbols. And so it's not something you can, you you know, it's going to ring a bell. It's going to be unmistakable. You won't be able to ignore it, but it's in the negative. It's not the positive. Uh, We know this because the same Hebrew word is used three other times, four total. And each time it's negative. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, in Jeremiah 19, verse 2, and in Habakkuk chapter 3, 16. And so it's a dreadful, a dreadful sensation, clear as a bell. That's the bottom line. That's what he's saying to them. He says, Behold, I am bringing such a calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that, Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, it will be clear as a bell and it will be dreadful. And that that is what's happening there. And after 22 kings in Judah and 500 years, they couldn't get it right. They're not going to get it right. They crossed the point of no return by the time Manasseh is done, in spite of his repentance. In verse 13, and we'll come back to all of that because there's a connection between Manasseh and the outlaw on the cross that repented, and the outlaw on the cross that did not repent is a connection with him and Ammon, or Ammon, Manasseh's son. Verse 13, And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the, of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Well, the... Measuring line indicates ownership. You know, when you see surveyors out there, uh, the owner is involved. Uh, And Samaria was judged for her idolatry. Um, The plumb line indicates straightness. If you're putting up a building, just for example, the columns, the posts that will hold up the structure, well, you've got to make sure they're straight. And you use a plumb line to do, to test the, the vertical straightness of it. In all my years of industrial construction, I don't remember ever seeing a plumb line used to take things apart. I mean, it's like, hey, cut that header out. Let me get a plumb line and make sure this is straight. So you say, well, what is happening? And I think what's going on here, God is saying, I am being very meticulous about this. I am being very careful about my judgment. None of this is whimsical. This is all calculated and controlled. And it will be just. It will be straight. And, uh, you know, snipers are taught that nature hates a straight line. And so when they're looking for targets, if they see a straight line, they know that's something man-made. And I, when I go in the woods, I never see a straight stick. It's, you know, you, you look at it long enough, you may think it's straight, but you look at it, that ain't straight. Anyhow, I don't know why I brought that up. I like saying things like that. Uh, <laughs> that's only some of it. Uh, Where on earth was I? Oh, I know where I was. So, anyway, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And there's the kitchen illustration. Uh, Jerusalem's purity is more important than the lives of the impure inhabitants of Jerusalem. Because it's a long-term effect. It's not God saying, well... I don't care about people. It's God saying, no, I do care. And that's why they're going down, because they're going to hurt future generations. He's putting the kibosh on that or limiting it to some degree. What if God did nothing? Well, man would self-destruct. It's just he he is the one, and Ephesians tells us, he holds all things together by the word of his power. And uh, uh, aren't we glad? This depopulation of Judah and the deportation of Judah, with depopulation through killing, you know, the troops will come in and kill, and then the deportation of those who survive will leave it uh, pretty much empty. Jeremiah 51, 34 is just one of many places it talks about that. Verse 14, so I will forsake the remnant 
of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. And again, the prophets have been warning and warning. Just because the judgment is delayed doesn't mean it's not coming, says the Bible. Uh, the whole land of, inherit- of, of Canaan was the inheritance of God's people by, dis- by pushing out the wicked and, and letting them come in. Well, ten of the tribes were already removed. You would think, you would think a man like Manasseh, who was educated in the palace of Israel, was no was, was, was educated. You would think he would say, wow, look at that. We have all the writings of the prophets that kept saying, you better fix this or else God's going to judge it. And it happened very close to his lifetime. It would be like, you know, no, I, you can do enough on your own. But anyway, only Judah remains. Well, there are remnants from every tribe with Judah. Benjamin is there. They are, they're all have people from various tribes. But the, the tribal control is, is lost. And interesting, it says in verse 14, So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance. What's left of my inheritance, Judah, not the righteous. The righteous are included. But forsaken, the Hebrew, is to strike or to pound. And this is judgment, God is saying. I'm going to judge whoever's left of my people. Uh, the righteous remnant amongst the national remnant will suffer too. Well, where's the proof of that? Well, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, they were righteous. Daniel was snatched off, made a eunuch, believed to be, to uh, Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah, look how much he had to suffer because of these noodle heads. Um, So, yeah, when we suffer, what if you're a Christian in Oakland, <laughs> yeah, liberal-run cities are run by people who hate God. Look at their policies. Look how they vote. Hey, let's try to put abortion clinics on every corner. I mean, this is real. Look at the Soviet Union. That the fruit of atheism. Russia is still messed up to this day. Uh, the, the hatred for God. Uh, how much do the Chaikoms cover up? Because of their hatred for God. Uh, the abuses, they're right now, aren't they rioting over there? They're tired of COVID restrictions. Nobody's caught COVID. No, all right, I'm going to start. Verse 15. It's just Satan doing these things through vessels that refuse to let God in. And by default, Satan gets in. And people suffer. And so verse 15, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day... Their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So God is saying, this judgment is not going to be random. It's not even going to be odd. Like, huh, I can't believe that happened. It's so rare. It's deliberate. And they'll have to say, yeah, God did this. Or go to their grave lying to his face in their own selves. Verse 16. Moreover, that means, oh, there's more. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So he was physically violent and he was spiritually violent. Uh, he was to Judah what, what Nero was to Rome. Caesar Nero and King Manasseh are cut from the same cloth of hell. And many have been such uh, ever since. Uh, how about Valdi and Paler? Wouldn't you want him for your neighbor? Oh, look, he's got more ornaments up. Those aren't ornaments. <laughs> Manasseh. Uh, think about this. Manasseh's just as wicked as Stalin and Hitler and all these other boogeymen from, from history. And he gets saved. Does that not, is that not God saying, Manasseh's salvation tells us what could have happened to Hitler and Stalin. They could have repented. In spite of all the evil they did, they still could have repented. Who's to blame here? Well, man, thumbs his nose at God and insists on going to his grave, provoking God, poking God. It's, it's really very, very bad. <laughs> like, you need me to tell you that. Verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did 
and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, they are. His wicked demanded, it demanded it be, it be it purged, his wickedness, and it was. But his, the reforms of the coming king, good king Josiah, couldn't undo this. It made a dent, but it really couldn't. It made a dent on the individual level but not the national level. As soon as Josiah was dead, the people were right back at it. Thus the lamentation of Jeremiah over him, part of it. Anyway, it says in verse 17, and the sin that he committed. Well, God, not even God, will take back all the pain caused by such sinners. The Apostle Paul, his contribution to the death of Stephen could not bring Stephen back once Paul got saved. It was, it was done. He could not bring him back to his loved ones. There are consequences. So it's best to not live that rotten life and cause so much harm. I mean, do drug dealers get saved? They do. Not all of them. Not even most of them. It looks like to me. But some can and do. They can't undo what they did. God has to be part of everything. These things hurt, but man, you better stay focused on what the fight is all about. It is Satan, it is a real spiritual enemy. And if he drags you into a physical conflict, you've probably already lost. He's beaten spiritually. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I didn't make that up. God tells us this. They are spiritual, they are mighty. And we have to be just as relentless. It's like, all right, fine. God hasn't answered my prayer yet. I don't know why there's war going on around me. But I know this. I'm supposed to be at my post and continue to pray and not lose heart. Uh, it's, it's easier to not lose heart when you've only been praying 10 years for something. But when it gets it to 20, 30, it's, it's really knock down, drag out war. But ask yourself, is the person you're praying for worth it? Because someone just told me, I think I just said this Sunday, it's such a good story. Uh, they've been praying for their child for 35 years. And the child finally got saved. Pistols were involved. No, they weren't. There was prayer. That's all. <laughs> anyway, where was I? Okay. And the sin he committed. I read that. Uh, Second Chronicles 33, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to Yahweh their God. That's the commentary after he was converted, after he gave his life to God. The commentator says, yeah, yeah, but the people, there were still those in the nation that remained seduced. Uh, verse, uh, continue, I want to continue in verse 17. He says, Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, the mention of this separate book, uh, not uh, in, in the scripture, this, this chronicles that we have, but there are other books that are referenced. And the fact that the historians mentioned those as separate books indicates that the books we do have are spiritual and the other books are were historical. Now, there's history in the spiritual books that we're reading now, Kings and, and referencing Chronicles. These are spiritual books from God, whereas the other books that uh, did not survive, uh, many of them, they just were historical records. So that adds some uh, thrust to what, to what we have. Now, there are other spiritual books that we don't have. They're lost. Other prophets have, have books. Uh, we don't have them because God has decided, well, this is enough. Um, and if you start studying it, I, when I was a new Christian, I got to the end of Revelation, uh, and I said, man, well, I wish there was more. I'm ready for more. I think about that and say, man, you were so dumb. Uh, it's hard to handle what we have. And keep your head in it because after the years it can become you know, white noise. You just, you don't even hear it anymore if you're not careful. You've, you've got to stay focused. Anyway, uh, the story of this Manasseh, repent, his repentance and restoration, it would resonate 
with the audience of kings. Remember, the, the book of Kings is something that developed. You, you, it goes way back to, to Solomon, the, the death of David. And so no one person lived through the book of Kings. It's, the historians kept adding to the story as the Spirit guided them, the Holy Spirit. And uh, this audience, by the time they get to Manasseh, the Jews that are coming out of Babylon, that we haven't gotten to that yet, but they, the readers will come to this, and it will resonate with them. Because like Manasseh being taken captive to Babylon, they as a people were taken captive to Babylon for the same reasons. And just like Manasseh, they were restored to Judah. And that's the story of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. So this uh, is more than a history book for those Jewish people alive then. Remember, the Bible is made, there are parts of the Old Testament, you may say, boy, that is just really not helpful to me. Well, it was to somebody at some point. There are other people in history that mean just as much to God then and now as, as we do. So that's a bigger picture. But Manasseh's conversion, it would trouble a natural man because the natural man's understanding of grace is deficient. The carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. You, you must be born again. Well, Isaiah was preaching this. Isaiah 26.10 this is what he says. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of Yahweh. Well, that's what Paul was teaching. That's what Christ taught. When Christ said, you've got to be born again. You have to have the touch of God in your life. You have to respond to that touch. So, a natural man, a, a man is not saved, supposes that grace shown to somebody like Manasseh or the outlaw on the cross, they would, that's a violation of justice. And, and they, of course, would be wrong. A violation of justice would look like this. God forgiving Manasseh without Manasseh repenting. God forgiving the thief on the cross who wanted no parts of Christ, letting him into heaven nonetheless. That would be a violation of, of justice. There are other laws. So in a church, when businessmen come in and they become part of the decision-making uh, or the board, uh, if, if they don't understand that there are other laws... There are laws for business, and there are spiritual laws. If they don't understand that, then the church will be run like a business. But when they understand that uh, the, uh, the pastor prays before he appoints somebody, not based on their credentials, but on what God said. See, that's another law. We exercise every time you see an airplane. You see the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics at the same time. One is overcoming the other. I think when we understand this better, we can communicate to unbelievers and say, listen, you don't have all, there's the law of God. Well, I'll lay it out scripturally. Jesus, when they wouldn't receive him, it says he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And James comes along and says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy because he's got other laws and he tells us about them. Who are you to judge another? That's grace. Grace is something that is not natural, and therefore the natural man has a difficult time with it unless they are submitting, opening their heart to the Holy Spirit. I tell you this because I have met people who have said, that ain't right. It's not right that a man should do all this sin, and then all he has to say is, God forgive me. Why isn't it right? That's the whole lesson with the serpent in the wilderness. God said, if the serpent bites you, the viper gets you, just look at the brass serpent and I will forgive you. What if you were stubborn? Nope, not going to do it. Don't believe it. Then you died. And that's the story of the gospel. God wants that submission because without it, you are just a devil. You're, that's, what's made, say, that's what made Lucifer a devil. He, would, he rebelled against God. Well, verse 18. I hope I communicated that well. I feel like I did. But... Don't worry, on a drive home, it'll be like, man, I messed that up. Anyway, verse 18. 
So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. And we don't know where this garden tomb is or grave, but let's read what Chronicles has to say about Ammon. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. That means he he dies at 24. But he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as his father Manasseh had done. Well, Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. He did not humble himself before Yahweh, as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. You see, the historians in Kings doesn't tell us about Manasseh's repentance. It's almost as though he says, I don't want my audience to take, say, look, I can just sin like a devil, and then just at some point it'll be all right. And so he take, he doesn't present that, whereas Chronicles takes a different approach. And they're both right. Uh, but the two outlaws, or the two kings, one a convert, one not, by their own choice. Luke 12, verse 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Well, that's Ammon. He's the one that was not forgiven. Whereas, of course, Manasseh was. What, what a humbling lesson. What a, you know, in the end, he gets saved. After all the dirt he did. Well, it's just relative to humanity. Because from God's position, our dirt is just as bad. Verse 5, uh, Luke fifteen twenty one, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, that's the experience of Manasseh. And God lays this before us and says, I am the lawgiver. I am the one that forgives. Verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamath, the daughter of Heraz of Jatba. We all know Jatba. They had a hamburger stand there with milkshakes. It's just out of this world. <laughs> uh, anyway, verse 20, And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, his father, as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked, verse 21, in all the ways of his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. Verse 22, he forsook Yahweh, God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of Yahweh. Well, it reads as though he once was, he was raised to follow Yahweh, but abandoned him for other gods. And again, uh, it didn't serve him well. Almost done. Verse 23, then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. How humiliating. Perhaps... Uh, they executed him for his idolatry. A short, despicable life, 24 years old, a dishonorable death, and a damned eternity. That's what he got out of it. And it was all avoidable. You, it's enough to give you chills reading about this if, you can, if you're just serious about it. If you know this is a fact, as it is, Verse 24, but the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. So the people of the land here were the officials high enough to be able to pull this off without causing an uprising. They were palace people. Verse 25, now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Um, his religion was, is epitaph enough. What he, his paganism, is enough story about him. Here's an old saying that is, I don't, you probably never heard it before. And that's why you've come here tonight. <laughs> one was saved that one might I'm sorry, I lost myself. One was saved that none might despair, yet only one that none might presume. And, and what he is saying there is that thieves on the cross are between these two men, Manasseh and Ammon. 
one of them was saved, as rotten as he was, that no one could say, there's no hope for me. We can say there is hope. If he can be saved, anybody can get saved. But Amon didn't get saved. He's doomed. Nobody can presume, well, we're all going to get saved, no matter what I do. No, there is a consequence. And so once again, one was saved that none might despair, yet only one that none might presume. Whoever wrote that, you know, they had a chance to make that rhyme, and they missed it. And it's just poetry is, needs to rhyme, regardless of what people say. Anyway, verse 26. But he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. Well, just a few facts about this king. We'll get him next, next week. One of Israel's, uh, Judah's and Israel's greatest kings, uh, David first, and Hezekiah and Josiah together. His grandfather and father were two of the worst kings of the 21 kings up to that point. Uh, just uh, of, of the 21 kings in, in Judah. His birth and life was the fulfillment of a 300-year-old prophecy that named him. Josiah will come, and he will deal with these pagan altars. And he, he, that, that happened. Uh, he removed the shameful things of Judah and established the glory of God. But most of it on the surface, because in the hearts of many of the people, they weren't having it. Uh, he sent to inquire of the Lord. And he stood in his place, the, the place where he was supposed to be under Yahweh as king. So we'll get to some of that uh, exciting king, Josiah. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, this evening, we, uh, we pray that maybe we get a chance to share with someone in need just how, uh, how far-reaching your grace and mercy is without, without the violation of justice. And we pray also, Lord, that you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.